continuing in our catechism series, we were, uh, are in the portion concerning the Lord's Prayer in the section of the catechism concerning, uh, concerned with gratitude, our thankful service to our Lord. So we're going to read a variety of passages which have to do with the petitions that we're looking at this evening, but we're going to start by reading Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 15, Pew Bible, page 1,504. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Looking at tonight, uh, the petitions give us today our daily bread and also forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And now in correlation to uh, give us this day our daily bread, I'd like to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is in your pew Bibles on page 1,800. And 50. We're going to look at verses uh, 3 through 10. And also verses uh, 17 through 19. Paul to Timothy. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then also continuing, Paul instructs Timothy concerning uh, those who are wealthy in his congregation. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. 
In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And concerning the second petition, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, look with me at 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. As soon as I find it. How shameful would it be if I had to go back to the glossary at the beginning? Your pastor's looking what page First John starts on. All right. Page 1,898. But we're going to start in verse 8, so actually uh, 1,899. John says this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We're going to read all the way to chapter 2, verse 2. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin... We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. We're going to be looking in the Heidelberg Catechism at Lord's Day 50 and 51. It can be found in the back of your pew Bibles on page 62. You can read uh, the answers together with one voice. What does the fourth request mean? Give us this day our daily bread means do take care of all our physical needs so that we come to know that you are the only source of everything good and that neither our work and worry nor your gifts can do us any good without your blessing. And so help us to give up our trust in creatures and to put trust in you alone. What does the fifth request mean? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors means. Because of Christ's blood, do not hold against us, poor sinners that we are, any of the sins we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. Forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us to forgive our neighbors. Now, I find often that we have this sharp contrast sometimes in our minds that God is only concerned with the big things, the things that are important, the things that are spiritual God is only concerned with the big land-sweeping moments of history, and maybe sometimes we seem to think that it's a bit insignificant, but God would be concerned with little old me and my issues and the fact that I'm praying to him because I can't find my keys and I'm going to be late to my appointment or whatever it may be. But I find here in the Lord's Prayer something that 
points me in another direction. It points me into believing that God is concerned with the ordinary as much as he is or as well as he is concerned, concerned with the extraordinary. And so that's really what we're looking at tonight. We're seeing that we are to pray to the Father for the ordinary and the extraordinary. The ordinary and the extraordinary. We're going to pray to the Father for the ordinary and the extraordinary. Of course, point number one is ordinary. And what I mean by this is daily bread. Point number two is extraordinary. Do any of you actually go extraordinary? Or do you kind of extraordinary, like we all kind of just blast through it? And here I'm thinking mainly forgiveness of sins. To me it seems rather bizarre that or strange to my thinking that God, uh, Christ, would teach us to pray with these things so closely together. But it ties all of life in one for us. So let's look at the first position, uh, petition and talk about this ordinary reality. First thing we need to see here is that in, in many ways, the Lord's Prayer kind of mirrors uh, the Ten Commandments. So if you remember when we talked about the Ten Commandments, we said that there's uh, the first table, and it's about our relationship with God. And then there's the second table, and it's about our relationship with neighbor. Well, in the Lord's Prayer, there's a shift that occurs here in this petition as well, because we see that the first few petitions, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, so they're the yours, right? But then here in, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, we have give us today our daily bread. These are the hours, our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. So the uh, perspective is shifting almost like the Ten Commandments do, that God is the uh, main object, right? To Now it's, uh, it's a more communal, neighborly aspect to it. But as we talked about in the commandments, that love of God is the basis for all that we do to love of neighbor, we should not think that now because we're switching from the yours, your kingdom come, your will be done, to the ours, that our foundation in God is not, the, uh, is not where all this is, is flowing from. So let's look at this petition. Give us today our daily bread. The catechism, of course, says this means 
do take care of all our physical needs. Physical needs is what is in mind here. Bread, of course, in the Bible has a much deeper meaning than just bread. That is to say that when we pray, give us today our daily bread, we're not only asking God for a loaf of wonder bread. It's not specificity going on there. That what is in mind when we say give us today our daily bread is everything that we need to sustain us physically. That means uh, a job, money, uh, housing, peace in the government so that we can lead peaceable lives and, and share the gospel. It means that we need food. It means that we need all these things. The list could go on and on and on. These are our needs, not wants, needs. And that's why I, I read First Timothy, because Paul seems to think that clothing and food is what we should be satisfied with. Now, maybe many of us today in our Western culture would, would add to that list. But for him, who endured all things for the sake of the elect, he said, if I have clothes on my back and I got food to eat, I'm content. I'm content. Give us today our daily bread. In so many ways is a petition that so many of us who are so blessed with the abundance that we have find it hard to really grasp. Now maybe if some of you have gone without for some time, you know what it means to pray, give us today our daily bread in the truest, realest sense. Because when Jesus was instructing people in his time to pray this prayer, give us today our daily bread, they knew that. They felt the weight of that because they knew that what they were doing today was simply enough to get what they needed for today. That's the way they were living under the hardship of Rome under the high taxation that they were experiencing from tax collectors, an agrarian society that depended upon rain to come so that their uh, crops could grow, so that they could make bread. This is a very real thing. I remember, as just a short story, that when my wife and I got married, we first started living on campus at the Bible college I went to, and I was just working part-time at the cafeteria there in the college. When we got our tax return back, it said that uh, I had made $12,000 that year. That was it. And there was a time when we didn't have any money to buy groceries. And we went for about a month. And the only reason we had anything to eat was because I was told by my boss that I could bring food that wasn't eaten home from the cafeteria. I learned how to pray, give us today our daily bread. Because I didn't know if we were going to eat. But today we don't, we don't in a very real sense experience that. We have refrigerators, 
freezer. Some of us have two. Some of us have those big, deep freezers that we can, you know, cut up a whole cow and throw it in there, and we can have it for a while. We store up. But give us today our daily bread means that God wants us to know, to pray to him for all that we need because he's the one who has given it to us. This is the reason we pray before meals. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever realized that maybe it's kind of simply a tradition that's gone on and on? We always pray before meals. I know in very many, you know, not very religious families, they may not go to church very often, but they keep praying before meals. We pray before meals because before we eat our food, we want to take a moment to recognize that we would not have this food to eat if it were not for the God in heaven who is our Father, who has graced us with it. That's what the catechism is talking about is here, is physical needs, so that we come to know that you, God, are the source of everything good. You are the source. You are the giver of all good gifts. You're the one who has given it to us. And this is why Paul and Timothy is instructing the, the rich people to make sure that they don't become so dependent, so trustworthy, so hoping in their own riches and all that they have that they do not see that they are dependent upon God for everything just as the poor person who lives on the street is. Because the rich person who knows that all good things have come from God, their hands are open to give to others who are in need. Their hands are open to share the abundant blessings that God has given to them. And it's important that we notice this communal aspect of this petition. Give us, give us today our daily bread. James goes as far to say that someone who says, hello, brother, be warmly fed and go in peace to a man who is hungry and has no clothes upon his back, has a dead faith. It's a faith that's not living. Because although God has graced him with bread in abundance, he did not consider to break a piece off for his brother. Give us today our daily bread. And it continues, it says... And that neither our work and worry nor your gifts can do us any good without your blessing. Neither our work and worry can, nor your gifts can do us any good without your blessing. That is to say, no matter how hard we work in our employment or our job, Paul instructs the person serving uh, in, in Thessalonica, I believe, that he should so, no longer steal, but work with his hands that he have something to share with others, right? The work that God has blessed us with, nor worry. Christ has spoken about worry in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He does not add any time, anything to your day. Today has enough worries of its own, nor God's gifts, 
do us any good without the blessing of God. Ooh, getting down there. Without God's blessing, all these things are fruitless activities. These are ordinary activities, right? But think of what Paul says. He says, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. That is to say that the blessing that comes from working with our hands, from gaining all that we need in this life, right, physical needs, job, money, housing, peace, government, food, all these things, that they do us no good ultimately if we deny the hands that gave them to us. If we do not give glory to God for the gift. That is to say that in a very real sense, the ordinary becomes extraordinary when we look up to God and we say, God, you're the giver of daily bread. You're the giver of my job. You're the giver of this car. You're the giver of this gas. You're the giver of this Twinkie I'm about to eat. You're the giver of this Coca-Cola that I'm about to drink. You're the giver of all this. And may I enjoy it to your glory. Sorry to all those out there who think Twinkies are disgusting and would rather eat Ho-Hos or something. I don't know. Little Debbie's. Maybe that would have been a better thing to say. That's the first petition that we're looking at tonight. Give us today our daily bread. And what I called ordinary. But what about this extraordinary element? That second petition, what does the fifth request mean? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors means because of Christ's blood. Because of Christ's blood, do not hold against us, poor sinners that we are, any of the sins we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. Now this um, request often brings up a lot of questions about what exactly it means that Christ instructs us to pray for uh, forgiveness of our sins, forgive us our debts, when He has completely paid for all of our sins. That right now we stand righteous before our Heavenly Father because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So why exactly is Christ instructing us to pray for the forgiveness of sins? And I hope we can answer that. That's part of the reason I wrote, uh, read 1 John. 1 John is telling us something very important. It says that if we claim that we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. That is to say that even as believers, we still sin. Yet, in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Paul, uh, John goes on to say, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The basis, that is to say, for this extraordinary request is Christ's sacrifice, his blood. The catechism makes that clear. It says, because of Christ's blood. Because of Christ's blood, because of Christ's blood, we ask the Father to not hold against us, poor sinners, that we are any of the sins we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. This is a request based upon Christ's work. But the next question is, well, does this mean that unless we keep asking for forgiveness, then God won't forgive our sins? I mean, I, I used to believe that if I went to bed without having forgiven all my sins, you know, that would be the moment. Is that what is going on here? Well, look at the Lord's Prayer portion that we've been reading. And look at particularly these words that come after Jesus' prayer. He says in verse 14, If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That kind of sounds like a conditional clause, right? It's a condition. If you forgive, God will forgive you. If you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. But if it's a condition, that means our salvation is based upon a work. And that work is forgiving others. Throw out all that we've talked about, saved by grace through faith, justification by faith alone. It's gone because we read here Jesus saying, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's not what's going on here. This isn't a conditional reality. This is Christ saying, evidence that you have experienced forgiveness of sins is that you forgive others. So this request that we make based upon Christ's sacrifice, his blood, that God would not hold our sins against us any longer, always is good because Christ now stands as a mediator before the Father interceding for us, always saying, look, you can't hold, you can't hold Carrie's sin against him. Look, here I am. Here's the scars. Can you see them? That's what the, per, the first part means. Forgive us our debts. Because of Christ's blood, do not hold against us, poor sinners that we are, any of the sins we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. But the second part, forgive us just as we are fully determined. As evidence of your grace in us, to forgive our neighbors, to forgive those who have wronged us. And Christ, he, he shares a parable that explains this reality perfectly. You probably are familiar with it. It's the one where a man owes somebody, another man a lot of money. He's borrowed a lot of money from him, his master or whatever it may be. 
And so the time comes when that man brings the, the debtor in front of him. And he says, you owe me millions of dollars. And you need to pay up. And if you can't pay up, you and your children and your wife are going to be sold into slavery to make up for the cost. And he begs for forgiveness. Please, please, give me time, please. And to his amazement, your debt's forgiven. Go on. I've been moved by this display of despair. Your debt's forgiven. But that man who has been forgiven much goes to another person and says, you owe me $100, and takes him by his throat and chokes him and shakes him and says, give me $100. And the man who had forgiven that man's debt heard about it, called him, and said, how dare you go and show such hatred to another when you have been forgiven so much? I threw him into prison. What's that? parable telling us. It's telling us that part of the reality of having been forgiven much by our Father in heaven by the blood of Jesus Christ is that we are not quick to hold grudges. We do not hold things against our brothers and our sisters because while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are called to ask forgiveness of our sins from our Heavenly Father that we may be in right relationship with Him. That we might have full communion with Him. Not because those sins will be held against us in eternity. All that's wiped away in Christ. And having experienced the grace of forgiveness of our great debts, we look to our neighbor, and if you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, everyone is our neighbor including those who have wronged you the most, hurt you the most. And we say, how can I not forgive you when God has forgiven me? Now, this doesn't belittle sin or overlook the hurt that people have done But it is an expression of an experience of the grace of God. It speaks much to what our heart is like when others hurt us and belittle us. That we may be eager to forgive them, as the catechism says, fully determined as evidence of your grace in us to forgive our neighbors. These two requests bring together the ordinary reality of our lives. We are dependent upon God for all that, but also the extraordinary reality of our lives that we are dependent upon God for the forgiveness of our sins. I pray as you 
thought of these issues, you realize that God is concerned that we pray to him for the ordinary and the extraordinary, for daily bread, and that we, our own debts, our own sins may be forgiven, that we would be willing to to forgive others who have sinned against us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we could look at your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to pray all the more truthfully and sincerely in dependence upon you for our daily needs, in dependence upon you for the forgiveness of our sins, and that we, having truly experienced your grace at work in us by the blood of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, may be able to forgive those who have wronged us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.